0: In verse 14 of chapter 3, and um, we're in the church of Laodicea, and this church certainly has enough for its own class, so uh, we'll let it speak for itself here tonight. So let's open in a word of prayer. Ask God to bless our study, and we will get right on it. And let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask. Um, that if you could work out whatever the technical problem is and uh, bless those that uh, were removed from the Zoom, we Lord, we would thank you for that. And Lord, we meanwhile just put our mind to the text and we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, we want to receive that tonight. We want to receive its power and its beauty. We want to receive a word from you, Lord. We want to hear your voice, Lord. We want to know our shepherd. And so we pray that you would bless us in these ways, Lord, for your name's sake and all of our lives. We pray these things. Amen. Okay. So picking up our final seventh church, we read in verse 14. It says, And to the the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things say the amen, The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this starts with Jesus calling himself the Amen. Now, the New Testament uses that word Amen a bit differently than we use it. We use this word to end a prayer or to give hearty approval of a statement. And we use it at the end of that statement. We use this word at the end of our prayers. And uh, what it means, the, the, the word amen is a Greek word meaning verily or truly. Now, when I tell you it means verily or truly, you're probably thinking those words, verily and truly, Jesus uses to start sentences. He uses those to begin teachings. So um, what, what, is he, what is he getting at that he starts with an amen and we end with an amen? Well, when we pray... We're actually requesting, we're actually seeking out the Lord's will, and we're asking that this would be so. Whatever our prayers are saying, let this be true, Let um, uh, let, let this be so. Well, Jesus, because of his authority, he's able to say things, and before he says them, he's able to say, this is so, this is true. It brings some weight to his statement that he is the truth. He's not just a truth-teller, he is truth itself. So he's able to start his sentence and start his teachings with the Amen, and here in Revelation, he's actually able to call himself the Amen. Now he also says this. He also says that he's the faithful and true witness. We've heard that in earlier churches. And he says, I'm the beginning of the creation of God. He's not saying he began at creation, He's saying he's the beginning of the creation of God. And what I want to refer to you here to get a really good look at this, first is John's Gospel, first chapter, first verse. One of the most marvelous introductions to a book is uh, certainly the beginning of John's Gospel. And when it's talking about Jesus being the beginning of the creation of God, here's how the same author John said it when he wrote his Gospel. He said, In the beginning... So there's that word, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So now we keep seeing this word, him, his and him, he and him. Now, We know that this is, John is introducing us to Jesus here. And he calls him the Word. And with that Word, he says he was in the beginning with God. Not only was he there in the beginning with God, but he's actually doing the acts of creation. I don't think we often credit Jesus with the acts of creation. But lest you think this is just one of John's ideas, The Apostle Paul reiterates it for us in Colossians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15, he says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So this term firstborn is relating to our revelation verse where Jesus says he's the beginning of the creation of God. It's not saying Jesus had a beginning. It's saying that he is the beginning of creation creation. Creation begins through him. He's the creator of creation. And then when Paul in Colossians calls him the firstborn over all creation, he's not saying he was born and before he was born, he did not exist. What it's saying is in Jewish terminology, the firstborn is the one with preeminence and importance. Uh, So it's stating that Jesus has the preeminence over all creation and so therefore he's the beginning of the creation of god he's the beginner of the creation of god so this is an amazing term being called the amen and be calling the beginning of the creation of god is really really wonderful then in verse 15 we read this he says i know your works that you are neither cold nor hot i could wish you were cold or hot So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, this is one of the most famous uh, rebukes from Jesus to a church. is the one people seem to be most familiar with. And there are, in the minority of scholarship, there are those that will say that being cold is actually the opposite of being hot in the sense that being cold is actually a positive thing of being A hot um, is a positive, I'm sorry, being, yeah, being cold is positive, being hot is positive. It's only being lukewarm that's negative. And what they're referring to here is the Laodiceans' relationship with water where they did have hot springs that were very medicinal and useful. And certainly we like to cook and boil in hot water and to sterilize in hot water. And we find usefulnesses for that. And we also find usefulness for cold water and that it's refreshing to drink, and so forth. And the only thing that we really don't have use for is lukewarm water. If it's lukewarm, we typically wanna cool it off or we wanna heat it up. Uh, We just don't usually use lukewarm. The majority of scholarship disagrees with that, and they will simply say that uh, the cold, I wish you were cold, is negative, and being hot is positive. So the question would be, why would Jesus wish them to be negative It's actually emphasizing how disgusting it is to be lukewarm. So as you see in in my notes, I said, they say that an author can write a good biography if he either loves or hates his subject. But to be indifferent about his subject would not allow the passion to write a good book. It's like Richard Dawkins. He writes good books about God, although they're absolutely hateful towards God but his hatred towards God allows him to write a good book because he has the passion to write against God. Those who don't give a rip about God, don't even think about God, they're gonna never write a quality book about God. And uh, I refer you to, I don't know if you've read it, it's, it's a it's sold millions of copies, it, it was a bestseller, Richard Dawkins' book called The God Delusion. I was given that book by another pastor who bought it because he wanted to see what Richard Dawkins was going to say in The God Delusion. Then he saw it was over 400 pages and asked me to read it instead and take notes for him. And I was more than happy to do that. I took notes in the margins. And what I could tell you is, by the way, I never gave the book back. It was years ago that he gave it to me and I still have it in my possession. I don't even know if he signed up for the class. Gosh, I hope not after saying that. But anyways, um, I took notes in the margins simply showing all the logical errors that Richard Dawkins makes. And to me, he's one of the most overrated public speakers. And I realize right now I'm ranting against Richard Dawkins out of what's in my heart and has nothing to do with this class. So I will stop now. But what I want you to know is, it's that passion that allows uh, credibility towards the argument of God's existence. It's very difficult to be hateful towards something that doesn't exist. I have, if somebody came to me and said, I believe in Puff the Magic Dragon. I wouldn't rant and rave and write books against it. I would simply say, well, that seems silly to me, but okay. The fact that God is so real and He's written His law in everybody's hearts and minds, to me, is proof that when people don't believe in God, they actually get very angry about it. Uh, you get angry when Paul says in Romans, you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when you're suppressing the truth and people are poking at it, that gets your emotions going but if something's not a truth whatsoever, then it shouldn't rile you up like the likes of Richard Dawkins get riled up over the issue of God. So, this could actually be, I wish you at least had enough passion in you to be cold, but you don't, your indifference is what's absolutely disgusting, and I will vomit you from my mouth. Now, what I tell my students is this, if I absolutely had to convert somebody, I would much rather have an atheist that I have to convert or ask God to convert than an apatheist. And what I call an apotheist is somebody who struggles from apathy. Somebody who just doesn't care. Um, I have those students, and believe it or not, at CCA I have atheists as well. It's the atheist who will actually engage in the conversation. It's the atheist that has thought some things out that can present them to you And when you have the truth on your side, you don't mind that because truth will somehow relate to all these objections. So it's the atheist that you can actually make progress with. It's the apatheist that there's really, there's not even a conversation happening. So I could certainly see the logic of Jesus wishing we were hot or cold, but the lukewarmness is rather disgusting. Now, how does apathy happen? Because people that walk with Christ are probably more in danger of apathy than they are of atheism. So what, how does apathy come about? Well, I think there's two major things that I have seen that causes apathy. One, when Christ loses his holiness in your heart, and he just becomes another guy, and just another historical figure, he loses his holiness, and it's also when the church loses its moral authority. So when the church no longer becomes the source for people's spiritual guidance and moral guidance, they instead look to the world for those things, then apathy will set in for Christ. So I refer us back, I think in the second time in the last three or so weeks to Isaiah 6. It's one of the great holiness passages where the angels of God are around the throne of God and they are crying, holy, holy, holy holy. It's the only threefold attribute of God given in scripture is his holiness. Now it's also in Luke chapter 5. I love this picture when Peter sees Jesus in front of his eyes go from this is a really cool rabbi to this is the son of God who is holy. And that's when Jesus asked him to push out into the water a bit for a catch. Peter, who's spent hours on that lake throughout the night, catching nothing, tells Jesus, hey, in my expert opinion, this is a waste of time. I've been fishing all night and have caught nothing, but because you said so, Lord, I'll do it. And he throws the net on the side, and immediately he's unable to pull in the net because of the great number of fish. He even needs a second boat to come along to help load his boat, and then their boat gets loaded with fish. And then Peter says something extremely unusual for a man who's having a great day on the lake. Instead of saying, Jesus, you and I are going to start our own Peter and Jesus fishing company. He says instead, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, what happened to Peter? Well, number one, he's probably having a great need met by this great catch of fish, financial need met by this catch of fish, but also... When you get a glimpse of who's actually in your boat, there's a moment when you get so close to the line of the tribe of Judah that you can touch his mane, and you, you realize exactly your spiritual condition. All the pride that made you think you're okay without Christ crumbles. All the arrogance of, I'm a good person, and I don't have need of anybody crumbles and you get a glimpse of God's holiness, like every hero of the faith in the Bible that catches a glimpse of God's glory, they all fall to their face as dead people. Holiness is awesome. Now I know you use that word for like, catching a great wave when you're surfing, but truly the word awesome is reserved for God. He fills us with awe. He takes our breath away, he makes us fall on our face in front of him because of the visions and the sounds and the images of his glory. So, um, we yeah. if we lose this picture of his glory, we are in great, great danger of apathy. We must keep his holiness in mind. And by the way, Revelation is a marvelous book to keep in mind his holiness. The pictures of Christ we get here are truly wonderful and help with that. Now, what's the second thing? that I said we need to fight against, uh, to not have apathy. It's we need to not have church just be where we go on Sunday mornings. We need for church not just to be our checklist of there, see, I'm a good person. I went to church. Church needs to be the center of our lives, just like the temple was in the first century. They, They based their, their free time, their recreational time, they based their social time, everything was around the temple. Certainly their feasts, certainly their uh, gatherings together with friends, all of these things were centered around the temple. And of course their worship was there as well. The church needs to become that again, where our kids play with their church friends and our, our activities during the week are found at our church. Now, obviously coming out of COVID, we need to... Kickstart that again, the more we get freed up from that um, pandemic. Now, it's moral authority is what I'm really getting at here. It's moral authority that, you know, when are politicians ever going to bring the church in to say, what do we think about this issue and that issue and that issue? We are so far removed from that that it's creating apathy in our citizens, even our Christian citizens. So I'm going to refer you to number 16 because number 16 is, the moral authority of the church which is basically moses and aaron and the levites with the temple is being challenged by a gentleman named cora now when i say cora you probably think of the word rebellion because those two words are hand in hand now cora's rebellion how would you like your name to be attached forever for the whole world that they think of rebellion when they hear your name well how did cora pull that off well we're going to pick it up in verse 41 of number 16 to see the real threat here but let me let me uh, summarize a bit for you to get you to where we're at in 1641 of numbers Korah approaches moses and aaron and says why he says you guys think a bit too highly of yourselves we're all holy how come you have the sacraments how come you have the access to the holy of holies how come you um, are in charge of the, the, the priests and so forth. What is different about you that, uh, than anybody else in this camp? And Moses warns him to back off from that, and he won't. And he says, okay, we'll see what God says about it. And God immediately tells Moses, get out of the way, I'm destroying these people. And Moses pleads and says, no, it's just these certain men. And Kor, Kor raised up 250 others who agreed with him. And Moses said, listen, put incense in your, and put, put fire in your incense um, altars and show up here with your fire tomorrow. And we'll see what God says. Well, God said, get away from their tents. And sure enough, they got away from Korah's tents and the earth opened up and, and their, his whole family was swallowed up. And the 250 that followed behind him in this rebellion, the fire from their censers sparked out and burned them all to death. Okay, now if that wasn't enough the people the next day start complaining about this event okay and in verse 41 says the next day all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron saying you've killed the people of the Lord it's calling them murderers now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment and they fell on their face faces so Moses said to Aaron take a censer and put fire in it from the altar and put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them so Moses wants to save them from all of this for wrath has gone out from the Lord the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense in and made atonement for the people. Now listen to verse 48. And he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. So that puts it right around 15,000 people died from this rebellion. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting for the plague had stopped. Now, I underline verse 48. Okay, it says Aaron stood between the dead and the living to make atonement and it said the plague stopped. Do you want to know what your pastor does every Sunday? He stands between the dead and the living. He stands between the dead and the living and he's pleading with God for mercy on people who have the curse of death on their head. We all have the curse of death on our head. The wages of our sin is death. And God anoints pastors to preach to people his word so that that plague will be stopped, that you will understand who Jesus Christ is through the preaching of the word. Faith will be implanted in you, and you'll have eyes to see and ears to hear. And you know, not everybody does. I'm sure you know plenty of people who don't. So when Korah rebels against this authority of the priesthood, this is what happened. So we need to hold this authority of our church leaders up in highest of reverence. We pray all the time for revival, but do we treat the spiritual leaders with the reverence that God showed Moses and Aaron during this rebellion. Back to Revelation 3. Verse 17. Still condemning or rebuking the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So they're becoming blinded by their own wealth. Their wealth is hiding their true spiritual condition. Now, Laodicea was a very rich city, prosperous in clothing, famous for its eye salve. Their wealth made them self-reliant so that they felt that they had no needs. Their wealth made them blind to their own poverty, their spiritual poverty. Now, of course, you're very familiar with Luke 15, um, verse, um, oops, I didn't write a chapter, did I? I just wrote Luke 15. Okay. Anyways, the verse I was looking for there simply says this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, what did you just hear in that? What did you just hear in that? Did you hear that, uh, the pursuit of wealth, uh, could cost you your soul? Yes, you heard that, but Here's what I really want you to hear. I want you to hear the worth of your soul so that you could literally gain the whole world. Imagine every nickel on the planet and every currency of every nation was yours. And for anybody to even have a nickel, they'd have to get it from you. And to get that wealth, you had to forfeit your soul. Jesus says this, there was no profit for you. There's no profit there. You actually are at a loss. The value of your soul is greater than the entire world's wealth. Do you believe that? What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and you forfeited your soul? Now, wealth is for the temporary pleasures of the world, but it cannot buy the gospel. One of my favorite, favorite verses in these 66 books is Isaiah 55, the first couple verses. Isaiah 55, the first couple verses. Speaking of your soul is worth more than the whole world's wealth, we got spiritual things are more important and more valuable than physical things. We see in Isaiah chapter 55, starting verse 1, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Think of the Samaritan woman and what well she was drawing from to satisfy her thirst. Jesus was saying, you're drawing from the wrong well. He says, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, which is eternal life, and who it is who said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. These are the waters spoken about here. This is the gospel. It says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Listen to this, and you who have no money, now where else can you possibly say this? You who have no money, come buy and eat. How do you say to somebody with no money, come and buy from me? Well, here's what God says. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine, that's your joy, and milk, that's your sustenance. Without money and without price. What did that just tell us? Tells us the gospel of your salvation is utterly free. Somebody else already paid for it. Okay? It is at no cost to us. It's simply from our belief, from our faith. The gospel is utter- utterly free. So the ironic questions that follow in verse 2 are why do you spend money for what is not bread? Do you see how this all relates to the um, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Listen, why do you spend money for what is not bread, what is not uh, essential, And, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in its abundance. Listen, he says, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. When the apostles see him talking to the Samaritan woman, they said, Rabbi, eat something. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they said, did somebody bring him some food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to finish his work. That's his three meals a day. That's his nourishment. That's his sustenance. Okay? And and, um, here he's saying we can get that from him without money, without cost, It's utterly and completely free. Now, this is why with all the wealth of Laodicea, Jesus says you're poor, blind, and naked. You really have no spiritual wealth. You can't see. You have no spiritual discernment. And you're naked. You're exposed in front of the world as a fraudulent church. Mm. Now, Proverbs 15, verses 16, 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree with that? Now, I was looking for another proverb that I remember. I don't remember it verbatim, but I couldn't find it. So I don't think I'm imagining this. I think it's an actual proverb. But it said something to the effect of, hey, the rich always have money for ransom. So if their kid ever gets taken or whatever and there's a ransom, they have the money to pay it. But you know what the vet next verse says? But the poor never have their children taken. (laughs) Isn't that far better? (laughs) It's far better. There's a lot of issues that come with wealth, isn't there? All right. Now verse 18 Revelation 3 I counsel you okay after he calls them miserable poor blind and naked he says I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see All right so verse 18 Jesus addresses the things that caused their self-sufficiency and he's going to replace them with something holy, something true, something that with actual value. So he says come by from me gold refined in the fire. Now what is that all about? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Gold refined in the fire. To 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 6 and 7, there Peter writes, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. All right, so first thing I want you to note is this. It's in the present tense that he says you're, you're greatly rejoicing. And he says, even if in this present time you're grieved by various trials. So I'm asking you this, Christian. Can you find your joy in your trials? Okay, and do you know what the Bible says about your trials? They're meaningful. They have purpose. They're working in you, godliness. They're working in you, sanctification. Now, he says, so buy from me gold, and Peter here says that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than what? Gold. The genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. So he says, come buy from me gold refined by fire. The refining of fire of gold means you're purifying it. The fire burns up all the impurities and leaves the gold purer and more valuable. So Jesus says, receive my tests, receive my trials. Those are burning away your impurities are purifying you to be more like Jesus Christ so it's your it's the genuineness of your faith that's the gold that we're to buy from jesus that makes us rich now what about uh, the next thing he says he says uh, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed so what's the clothing he wants to replace with their clothing well Let's look at Genesis 3.21. Genesis 3.21 says this about the clothing. It says, also for Adam, this is right after the curse, it says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, l- let me ask you this. How many of you, you've all read Genesis 3.21, but most likely you read it, you read to it, you read it, And you read past it you said why would anybody stop at 321 you want to stop at 321 because you have to remember that God had said to Adam on the day you eat of that fruit you will surely die he ate the fruit and he didn't die but some animal died in his place And now God covers them with the the, the skin of those animals. And this covering, this garment that he puts on them to cover their shame. The sign that they're sinful is their nakedness. And nakedness brings shame. So they're shamefully naked now. And God covers over their shame. All sin brings shame. So we need covering for our sin. And God, in Genesis 3, says something can die in your place. And so Adam and Eve have this covering of a sacrifice over them. Okay, And so this is a garment from God that we are to be wearing. Now, it's not only reflective of the substitute death that dies in our place when we're supposed to die since the wages of our sin is death but also I refer you to Matthew 22:11 and in Matthew 22 it's a bit long to go through so this is a parable this is finishing up a parable of the of the wedding banquet where the king who is God the Father in this is throwing a wedding feast for his son who would be representative of Jesus Christ here. And the king in all of his excitement says to his servants, go out into all of the land and invite all of the people to the wedding feast, which is, of course, heaven. And they start making all these excuses of why they can't make it to the wedding feast. So in his anger, he sends his servants outside of the kingdom boundaries. Go outside into the streets and the alleyways and invite them. And it says those people packed the wedding feast. But then a very unexpected turn of events happens when one person at this wedding feast is found not to have a wedding garment on. He's not clothed with the proper wedding garment. And he's kicked out of the wedding feast. He's to be thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anybody know what city that is? That's hell. Now, you want to talk about a dress code? This is a very serious dress code. So what is this garment? What is this wedding garment that this man was lacking that he's not allowed to join the wedding feast and he's cast into hell for? This is the garment of our righteousness. We're to be clothed in righteousness. And this righteousness of Christ is when from the moment that he's born to the moment that he dies He has to be perfect. There is one person who had to live out the law perfectly. There's one person who had to earn through works his righteousness. It was Jesus Christ. He had to be perfect. That's what he says when he says, I have to fulfill the law. The law is not null and void. It has to be fulfilled. It has to be lived out. So he didn't just die in your place. He also lived out the law perfectly in your place that we couldn't do. That makes him righteous. And then on the cross, I know you've heard that he died for your sins, but we also need to always, always hear as that he lived for your righteousness. Jesus lived for your righteousness because you can't. I can't. We can never be perfect. In fact, the law, Paul says in Romans 3, was not given to us for us to follow as much as it was for for us to realize that we can't follow it. The law is to point us to our need to Jesus Christ. Paul said, I didn't even know I was a coveter until I read the law. I said, do not covet. Then I realized, listen to what he says, that the law killed me. His coveting, he says, killed me because he understands that the wages of his sin is death. So now I'm a coveter. That's a sin. The penalty is death. So Jesus had to live without ever coveting. And as he lives this perfect life for 33 years, he dies on the cross. We all know our sin gets imputed to his soul, but now we also know his righteousness gets imputed to our soul. And therefore on your judgment day, God will judge you based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you'll be found to be holy and perfect. Remember when God said, be holy as I am holy, be perfect as I am perfect. That's the only way you're ever going to pull that off by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you can pull it off, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you will pull it off perfectly. You'll be found perfectly righteous. Isn't that remarkable? Okay, now. So, it said, so in Revelation, he says, not only buy from me gold refined in fire, that's the genuineness of your faith. He also says, and white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So now we got a picture of that through Genesis and Matthew. And then it says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, this one touches my heart most especially. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. First of all, the Laodicean church had a school of medicine that was famous for what they called Phrygian powder, which was an eye salve for eye problems, okay? So Jesus isn't using just some randomness here to reach them. When he speaks these words, they know exactly what he's getting at. Just like when he's talking to people of agriculture, he uses farming metaphors. He's talking to fishermen, he uses fishing metaphors. He knows how to reach his audience, doesn't he? Okay, now, so this I salve. Now in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, Mark 8, 22. This is one of Jesus' more confusing actions. It says, he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hand on his eyes again and made him look up and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent them away to his house, seeing neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now, Jesus uses his saliva as eye salve, doesn't he? And in Revelation, he says, now, every time Jesus heals a blind person, it is not simply for the sake Of a blind person now seeing there's always much more meaning to his miracles in John chapter 8 Jesus declares I am the light of the world and we know from the Old Testament the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all it says that in John's Gospel as well he's light and in him is no darkness at all and they would have and the tabernacle of the of the Exodus wilderness wanderings in that tabernacle They would have to light the lights of the lampstand every evening before dark and let that lampstand burn throughout the night until the sun came up again so that there was never darkness in the the presence of God. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and it says there is no darkness in the presence of God, therefore that lampstand had to always be lit at night. So if Jesus is God and there's no darkness in the presence of God, What does he do every time somebody is blind and in darkness? Every time they encounter Jesus, there's no darkness in the presence of God. So Jesus brings them light. He makes their eyes to see. Okay. So, so Jesus uh, here uses this eye salve, his saliva to heal this man. Now he healed other blind people without spitting in their eyes. So wouldn't you just wonder if you're this guy, why'd you get the hawker in the eye and the others didn't have to do that? Well, Dr. Warren Gage, a good friend of mine, taught me this theory, and I don't think it's anything more than a theory. But the book of Hebrews says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And if you ask, well, what is the joy that's set before him? I do think the best answer is that it's you and me, that we're going to be saved through that act on the cross and we're the joy that's set before him. But there's always more that meets the eye to the scriptures. And when you see Jesus heal people, you see it relate to his suffering. For example, he will have an issue of blood, obviously, on the cross. And so he heals a woman with an issue of blood. And when he sees her joy, is it possible that that's part of the joy that's set before him that allows him to endure the issue of blood on the cross. He will be told by a Roman guard to stretch out his hand to receive a nail. Is that why instead of just speaking healing into the man with the withered hand, he says, stretch out your hand so that he can remember that man's joy as he stretches out his hand for the cross, for the nail. And more than any of those, as Jesus will be blindfolded, and as he's blindfolded, and his sight is taken away from him, he is spat upon. So is it possible, is all I'm asking, that as he's blinded and spat upon, he'll remember the joy of this man in Mark chapter 8, the joy that he received when he received the spittle of Jesus and received his sight through that, that that's the memory Jesus was making for himself and was the joy set before him that helped him to endure the cross. Maybe, Maybe not. Now, you see the very things that he accuses the Laodiceans of having a false version of, he invites them to the true version, and the true versions are spiritual versions, correct? Do you know the spiritual world is more real than your world that you've experienced with your senses all your life? The spiritual world is more real than that? Okay? So now, Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. First thing I want to say about this is this. I'm in four, five, six different commentaries, um, online things or whatever, just looking at different people's opinions of these chapters. That verse, 100% of the people I read, not not talking about this verse, talking about this church, the Laodicean church, 100% of the people I read said that Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. It's nothing but rebuke. I say this. Jesus said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Here's what I hear in that. I love you guys in Laodicea. That's why you're receiving this rebuke. That's why I'm chastening you. I love you. And when I love you, the one thing I'll never do is leave you. So I am calling you to myself. So what we need to train our ears and hearts for is when we receive the chastening of the Lord, we're to hear his love in that, his great, great love in our rebukes and chastening. Now, the word for chasten here is elikos, And carries the idea of proving a point. So when he says, I chasten you, he says, I'm trying to prove a point to you. And it's exactly what God had Nathan do to David when David had to rebuke a king. So how do you rebuke a king and walk away with your head still attached to your shoulders? That doesn't happen very often, does it? So how does Nathan rebuke a king? Well, he does it through a parable. He tells the king a parable. And he tells him about the poor man who received the visitor. I'm sorry. There was a rich man who received the visitor. And although he had many flocks and herds, he took the one little ewe lamb from the poor man. That's all he had. And he treated it like his own child. He took it, slaughtered it, and fed it to the stranger. And David rose up in his anger and said, such a man should be killed. And Nathan heard that and said, you are that man. Okay. Now, um, he's proving a point. He's not just rebuking. He didn't just say, you're bad, you're awful, I can't believe you did that. Instead, he elagost him. He proved a point through the rebuke. God is trying to make a point. What's the point God's making to the of the Saiyans? You think you're rich. Why? Because you take earthly gold and put value to it. You take beautiful earthly garments and put value to it. You, in your schools of medicine, you created this great eye salve, and you sell it, and you get yourself rich off of it, and you think that you're rich, but you're poor, you're blind, he says to the school of medicine that invented the eye salve, and you're naked. You're exposed in front of the fiery eyes of Jesus Christ, okay? Now... Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12. When I was the dean of students at CCA and kids were sent to me for discipline, they heard Hebrews 12 all the time, starting verse five. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons, speaking to you as a child of God. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The Lord loves you just as you are, and he loves you far too much to leave you that way. You're going to receive the chastening of the Lord, the rebuking of the Lord. It is his love for us to sanctify, to purify. It's as... William Barclay says in your notes, he says, it is in fact God's final punishment to leave a man alone. When he leaves you alone, that's your final punishment. That's the worst you could get. He says, he quotes Hosea 4.17. It says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. That's the last thing you want to hear about you from God. Barclay continues, The great master builder squares and polishes with many strokes of the chisel and hammers the stones, which shall find a place at last in the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the crushed grape and not the untouched from which the costly liquor distills. God makes something beautiful out of the disciplining us. Now, Back to Revelation 3, picking it up in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. This knocking is seen in most New Testament understandings as a warning to be prepared for Christ's coming. But this context fits better with its allusions to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. If you'd join me there. Song of Solomon 5, verses 2 through 6. Now, I invited students to go to Song of Solomon with me a couple weeks ago, and I heard one of the kids singing the books of the Bible, till they got to Song of Solomon. If you're doing that right now, let me speed you up just a bit. And Song of Solomon is between Psalms and Isaiah are the big books. i having trouble getting to it myself. Alright, Song of Solomon, chapter... And we'll pick it up in verse 2. Now, this is the great uh, night before the wedding of Solomon and his bride. And we read there the bride, the night before the wedding, says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved he knocks saying open for me my sister my love my dove my perfect one for my head is covered with dew my locks with the drops drop of night it's the bridegroom knocking on the door of the bride okay now jesus says i stand at the door and knock john the baptist said he's the bridegroom i'm just the friend of the bridegroom correct and what a joy to be the friend of the bridegroom now So Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Yes, the parable of the ten virgins and passages like that. There's an idea of be expectant, be waiting. Remember one of the churches, their word was be watchful for these very reasons and so forth. But um, these verses continue. She says, I've taken off my robe. How could I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them again? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. My heart yearned for him and my hands dripped with, uh, I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Now, you may be wondering, well, if that's Jesus knocking at the door, then when we open to him, why does he run away? Okay. Well, well, If there's a book that is translated in different variety of ways as much as Revelation, it would certainly be the Song of Solomon. There's such a variety of interpretations. And yes, the bridegroom is knocking at the door of the bride, but I think a much more beautiful picture is being painted here. and uh, um, I'll share that with you. So she opens and he runs away. And verse 7 says, The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me and wounded me, because any woman out after night in those days was considered a prostitute. So they struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell that you tell him that I am lovesick. So she's apprehended, so she asks her friends to continue the search for her her bridegroom-to-be. Now, if you know the theme of this book, I'm sure you've heard it. It's do not awaken love before it's time. So they're doing their best to not awaken love before it's time, even though they have all of this very flattering language, literally from head to toe, saying how much they desire every part of their body and things like that. It's, it's, it's quite racy. And in fact, uh, many times throughout the centuries, it was encouraged to be removed from the canon simply because of how racy it was, but it certainly belongs here for the very reasons I'm going to show you right here. So with this knocking, this happens. She's apprehended. She asks her friends to continue to search for him, but and they say, "What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you charge us so?" They're asking, "How do we know who he is? How, how are we going to know when we see him?" And people say, "Well, he's the king. How do they not know?" and I tell them because they don't have CNN. They don't get pictures of the king all the time. They would never, most people never saw the king at all. But anyway, here's the description of the king and see if this rings a bell with you at all. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000, his head is like the finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as a raven, his eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set, his cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies. Lilies represent life. And it says dripping with liquid myrrh. Myrrh represents death. So isn't this interesting that these two symbols occur in this one verse. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved to ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are a of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yet he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, how many of you have an E Harmony page? It just says brown eyes, brown hair. <laughs> Not nearly as descriptive, right? Or poetic. Now, What's going on here? Well, let me ask you this. Who's her king that she's to marry? Says he's white and ruddy. Ruddy is the word used of David for his rugged handsomeness. So he's the rugged handsomeness of like a David. Chief among 10,000, that's another David reference. Remember the songs the Israelites would sing? Saul slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. His head is like the finest gold, So that would represent a king's crown. He is a king. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. The black hair represents youth. He's a young king. His eyes are like doves. Doves are the animal of peace. Washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices. Banks of scented herbs. That's speaking of his beard. His lips are lilies. They're speaking life. Dripping with liquid myrrh. So, he's speaking life in the midst of death. His hands are rods of gold, set with beryl. Burl is a blood-red gem. His body is carved ivory, inlaid with sapphire. Sapphire's sapphire run the gamut of the blues and the purples. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, altogether lovely. Listen, here's a description of him. He's a young king, peaceful eyes, bearded man. He's speaking life in the midst of death. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. His hands are rods of gold set with blood red gems. His body is carved ivory inlaid with the purples and the blues of bruising. His legs are pillows of marble set on bases of fine gold. That's how they made statues back then. They took the figure and the wood and they would attach the figure to the base with nails on the feet. His mouth is sweet. He's altogether lovely. He's my beloved, my friend, Odars of Jerusalem. What did she just describe? She says he's the most outstanding among 10,000 in his beauty. And yet she describes the very appearance of Christ cut up and bloody on a cross. But saying the most beautiful a man has ever looked is when Jesus was deformed by the beatings that was motivated by his great love for you. His great love caused his appearance to become deformed. So when she describes the great beauty of her beloved It's very much describing Jesus Christ beaten and bloodied on a cross because beauty is really the measure of one's heart, not the measure of one's appearance. And never was anybody more beautiful than when Jesus was made to be deformed and hung on a cross. That was the most beautiful a man has ever been. Chapter six says, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? Her answer is this, My beloved has gone to his garden. Where did Jesus go after he was beaten and deformed? He Went to the garden tomb, didn't he? To the bed of spices to feed his flock in the gardens. Didn't he come? He says, I want to give you spiritual food, living water. He's come to feed his flock. We are the sheep of his pasture in the gardens. He's returning us to the garden. He was raised in a garden tomb and to gather lilies for life. And then where their whole theme was, do not awaken love before it's time, here's their theme after marriage. Well, first it says, I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. He feeds his flocks among the lilies. He feeds us among life. Then in chapter 7, verse 10, where the curse upon the woman was, your desire shall be for your husband. Women typically have a heart to be desired, not to do the desiring. So that's part of the curse. And as they are encouraging each other to not awaken love before it's time, they're married, they did it right, and what does obeying God do? It breaks the curses. So what is she able to say in verse 10? I am my beloved's. Now listen to the reversal of the curse. And his desire is for me. She reversed the curse of Eve because of the blessings of God upon her marriage. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. All right, so so he stands at the door and knocks is what I'm getting at. All right. Now, here we see Christ, the lover of our soul, seeking after us. This is entirely unique to Christianity. You will not find a God seeking anybody in any other religion. This is our religion. Our God is the one who goes after the one. He's a seeker. Don Bailey, in his book, Out of Nazareth, cites three sources of this uniqueness to the seeking God of the Christian. Number one, he says, the Jewish scholar Montefiore said, the one concept Jewish scholarship never conceived of, never dreamed of in Jewish scholarship was the conception of God actually going out in quest of sinful men who were not seeking him, but who were turned away from him. Never dawned on a Jewish scholar that that was their God. Second one, the National Christian Council of Japan cited this uniqueness in saying, man not seeking God, but God taking the initiative in seeking man. Third source, St. Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century used to say to his monks, he says, however early, that they may wake and rise for prayer in their chapel on a cold midwinter morning or even in the dead of night. They would always find God awake before them, waiting for them. Nay, it was he who awakened them to seek his face. He's the seeking God. He's the initiator God. Here is God seeking for sinful men to find him. Surely this is the greatest love of all. Now also in verse 20 we read, he says, um, if anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. So you're invited to dinner with Jesus. And as you see in your notes, that's wonderful that it's dinner because for them breakfast was typically bread dipped in wine and, eat, and lunch was usually just eaten on the side of the road. But it was dinner That you actually arranged the time for, invited the guests to, sat, and for lengthy periods of time, you enjoyed one another's company. That's what you're invited to with Jesus. He will come in and dine with you. And you with him. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. If you're trying to picture how do I sit with Jesus on his throne, know this that Eastern thrones were usually couch-like. So there is room. There is room for you to sit with Jesus on the throne. What a marvelous invitation that is, isn't it? To sit with the king on his throne, that he wants you by his side there. Sometimes we have to just stop and let these things soak in, lest we become apathetic, by the way. Okay? Okay. Lastly, he says to him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This teaches the path in this passage, not only the sovereignty of the one who has the keys to David. We read with an earlier church and the keys to death and Hades. But we also see in these passages the responsibility of man. Because he He knocks. What do you have to do when he knocks? You have to open to him. Or as author Richard Trench puts it, he says, every man is the lord of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates of it. He has the mournful prerogative and privilege of refusing to open. He is blindly at strife with his own blessedness. And he is then a miserable conqueror. Holman Hunt has a painting called The Light of the World, and in that painting, The Light of the World, he paints, uh, he painted on it as a door of the human heart. He's got the human heart with a door on it, and that door has no handle. And when he's asked, why didn't you put a handle on a door? He says, the door of your heart can only be opened from the inside. There is no door handle on the outside of your heart. You have to do the opening to Jesus Christ. This is a great evangelistic tool, by the way, for us. So, with this church of the Laodiceans that has the worst of reputations amongst the seven churches and those that hold to the theory of the church ages being represented by each of these churches, guess which one would be us? The apathetic church, the lukewarm church. Okay, so let's beware. Now, instead of just calling you to beware of lukewarmness what i want to do in closing tonight in summary form is you see at the bottom of your notes there i listed all seven churches and what i did i said here's the encouragement they were given here's the danger that they're in here's the counsel that christ gives them and the reward for being faithful to the council because you're going to see we're all encouraged in these same things we're all in the dangers that they're in We all should receive the counsel that they receive, and of course, the rewards are for us as well as them. So, the first church of Ephesus, they were encouraged to, their encouragement was they persevered under hardship. They didn't grow weary. They hated the practice of the Nicolaitans, which was very sensual living. Their danger was, though, that they would lose their first love, that Jesus wouldn't have the priority in their life. So, what counsel do they get to not be victims of that? They are to remember. We talked about the importance of that word, remember. It's what communion is all about. It's what the rainbow is all about, by the way. Okay, it's about remembering. Their counsel is to repent. That's the most common counsel Jesus gives is repent. There is power in repentance. Power in repentance. Okay. So a student asked me today, how could King David be a man after God's own heart when he's guilty of murder and adultery And it was under his sinful rule that Israel started its decline and it never recovered from. Yet, Ravi Zacharias, who did so many wonderful things, is forever regarded in this terribly negative light. The difference is we never saw repentance from Ravi. We saw repentance from David. Repentance has power. Repentance has tremendous power. Now, who knows about Ravi's deathbed? Moments, I don't know, and I'm not going to say much more about that. But what I do know is this. David is remembered in very high regard, and it's all hinges upon Psalm 51 and the repentant heart of David. Repentance has power. It's the most common counsel of Jesus Christ is to repent of our sins. All right, what's the reward if they do so? They'll eat of the tree of life that's in the paradise of God. Smyrna Church, their encouragement was their works. Jesus saw their works. He saw their endurance and tribulation. He saw their poverty. He saw them overcome hypocrites. Their danger was that they would become fearful in their suffering and would back down because of their fear of suffering. So what's the counsel to those who are afraid of suffering? To be faithful even unto death. Death is not your enemy. So be faithful even unto death and you will receive as a reward the crown of of life. Isn't that ironic? You're afraid of death. And Jesus says, why are you afraid of death? Because your reward is a crown of what? Life. It's hard to be dead when you're wearing a crown of life, isn't it? It's resurrection. Now, pergamos their encouragement, Jesus knows their works in the midst of Satan's throne, that they hold fast to Jesus's name, and they didn't deny the the faith even in the midst of death. What danger are they in? They're in the midst of false doctrines particularly those dealing with sex and money. So I refer you back to what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What's their counsel? Repent. It's a cure for all of this. What's the reward? They will share of the hidden manna and they will receive the white stone. thyrotyra they're encouraged that Jesus is aware of their works, their love, their service, their faith, and their patience, even that their works are increasing. They're in danger of being influenced by the Seductions of Jezebel. They're becoming sexually immoral. It's a good thing that doesn't happen in our country. And they're becoming idolatrous. Okay? So there's a danger. What's their counsel? Repent. Have I talked about repentance yet? It's a powerful word. Okay? What will be the reward if they repent? They will receive power over the nations and they will receive the morning star. Sardis. Their encouragement, Jesus knows their works. What's their danger? Spiritual deadness. Orthodoxy, they're right in their doctrines. This isn't a, a problem with their doctrines. It's a problem with the heart behind it. They know what they know. They just don't have, this is, they, they don't feel what they're supposed to feel. In other words, listen, the cross should move you, right? We see crosses everywhere, but remind yourself, that's supposed to move my heart that's my death that's being died on that thing okay so it's orthodoxy without heart what's a counsel be watchful remember and repent and the reward for doing so is to walk with jesus in white and your name will not be blotted out of the book of life church of philadelphia's encouragements their works are known that's a very common thing that he's saying i know your works i know the things you're doing i know your works They have kept his word. They did not deny his name and they have persevered. The dangers they're in is not holding fast to what they have. Okay, so there's a diligence involved with your spiritual life. You don't hold fast to what you have. Okay, I literally try to make it a point to never, ever, ever leave my house without reading the word of God first. Never to see anybody outside of this house without having the word in my heart. It's my way of holding fast to what I have. Now, What's your reward for doing so? You're made a pillar in the temple of God. That means a permanent part of the temple. Uh, the name of God and the name of the new city of God, which is the new Jerusalem, as well as Jesus's new name, which I don't know what that is, is written on us for that. Becomes a part of us. And then finally, this Laodicean church, their encouragement, and I would love to see this in more books, Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. Um, the dangers that they're in is their lukewarmness. The counsel. Work on your the genuineness of your faith. That's the gold. Your righteousness. Receive it from Jesus. That's your garments. And your enlightenment. The eye salve that gives you sight. You all have physical sight, but that's not what it's calling you to. It's for spiritual insight. I can refer you to 1 Corinthians 2. If you want to see Paul really talk about that spiritual insight. That you have eyes to see. And uh, that is uh, the conclusion of chapter three. And we will kick off chapter four next week. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, Lord, and we're thankful and we pray, Lord, that when you give us encouragement, it would delight our hearts. And when you say, But this I have against you, that we will receive your chastening, your rebukes, and your discipline, Lord, knowing that you do it as a father who loves us. For Lord, even we earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more do you, being perfect, know how to give good gifts to your children? So we thank you and praise you for who you are. We pray that we would continue to grow in faith, in love, and Lord, in blessing others with our salvation, Lord that it would be used by you for the benefit of the many. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.
1: Uh, So Pastor Bill, we have uh, four questions that came in for this week. Uh, The first one reads this. Last week you mentioned briefly that Jesus, in his humanity, did not know the day of the Lord. And that's why he urged the church in Sardis to be watchful and prepared. Did I hear that correctly? Jesus did not know the day. Only God the Father.
0: Yes, you heard me correctly. He is the. Uh, he states himself that not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, know when He's coming again. I, I, I. We're not told why He doesn't know. Um, because Jesus teaches multiple times. The importance of us being ready and watchful it leads me to believe that he knows that we wouldn't be ready and watchful if he knew if we knew he wasn't coming back in our lifetime. So um, we could just kind of be like the Nicolaitans and just be sensual people and whatever we felt like doing that pleased us we would do and then just made sure we repented before we died. But um, the fact that he could come tonight should lead you to be ready and so forth. So. Uh, I don't know that that's the reason, of course, because the Bible doesn't tell us that, but it sure matches his teachings on being ready and watchful, and that's a very healthy thing for us to be doing.
1: The second question for the evening reads, should we be interpreting the book of Revelation literally? The same question goes for
0: the Bible as a whole. Okay. All right, so let's see if this makes sense. What's more important than interpreting the Bible literally is interpreting the Bible literarily. What I mean by literarily is, there are different genres of of literature within the Bible. There's poetry, there's history, there's apocalypse, um, there's songs. um, So we need to know what genre it's being written in. You certainly would not take parables literally. Uh, I know none of you do, because all of you that I can see your eyes, you were supposed to gouge out one of those every time you sinned lustfully. And I know you haven't made it this far without doing that. So the fact that you have two eyes means you have not taken that literally. If you have two hands, you have yet to chop off a hand for sinning. So you knew not to take that literally. Um, you were to take it literarily. It's a parable. And, it, it, and Jesus loves the, the uh, dynamic of hyperbole, extreme exaggeration to make a point. Um, it, it's one of his teaching techniques. So um, as far as that goes, if you're, if you're talking literally in the sense of whatever it says you do, you're going to be in great error very often. So you have to know the genre of literature that you're in. Um, the view of revelation that we hold as a church is the most literal view of, liter- of revelation of all of the views. Yet, even with that view, we certainly know that there's not a one-to-one correspondence between symbol and reality. Um, these things are used um, apocalyptically. The very nature of apocalypse is symbol. And I think I said this on week one, that the major persecution that John is under and his people are under would lead to them write, writing an apocalyptic language. It's coded language. That if it goes into the wrong hands, they'll have no idea what's being written about. But put into the right hands and the intended hands, they'll understand the symbols. Um, and, and it's my belief that they would know them through the Old Testament and they would be able to interpret what John is saying. So, um, there's a very much a yes and a no to do we take the Bible literally. Um, certainly when you hear that God loved, so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that's very, very literal. It's the genre of history. It's telling you historically God has moved in this way. Um, If you ever want to study Hebrew and Greek, all these things that I'm talking about become much more clearer in the original language than in English. It is very difficult in English to get at the heart of the Hebrew and the Greek. That's why we have so many commentaries and so many other things. But in Hebrew and in Greek, it becomes crystal clear what genre you're in and the understandings become... Uh, much more clear as well so um, so I hate to leave you with an answer of yes and no but I hope you see why I say yes and no now Um, I don't want to say not to take it literally because you think it's less than a holy book but also it's written in different genres and we have to know those genres in fact um, if I can interest you in this for a minute or so um, do you know one of the genres the major genres of the Bible is comedy. Now, I see your faces. Okay, that's what I thought. Now, listen. (laughs) We think comedy is stand-up stuff and ha-ha, that was so funny. That is not the true definition of comedy. The true definition of comedy are stories that start kind of low and depressing and end with surprise good endings. That's comedy. So, Jesus dies on a cross. That would be tragedy. But what happens on the third day surprise good ending right he's alive and that makes it comedy okay so comedy is a huge huge genre of the bible when you understand comedy you'll see that revelation is a tremendous book of hope because it ends extremely well it ends in glory it ends with you never being sad again never being sick again death has no power or place where you're going one day um so amidst the dragons and the plagues and all of that of Revelation, uh, you think, oh my gosh, this is terrible. But Jesus starts the book by saying, do not be afraid. And he ends the book at our wedding, wedding feast. We're feasting at our wedding with our bridegroom, Jesus. For all, it's, an, it's an eternal wedding feast, by the way. So get comfortable. You're going to be there forever. And now weddings are supposed to be the most joyous occasion and the wedding feast is supposed to be the most fun part of the most joyous occasion. So it's trying to say, you're in for a great time forever if you're in Christ.
1: Question number three. Uh, basically, I'm gonna do kind of a summary of several questions that we got last week. Uh, in one part of your teaching last week, you were talking about uh, basically the subdivisions or classes where, uh, Roman governors sat in. Uh, I believe it was called Eos Galata number one
0: could you spell it because we had several people that were trying to look up uh, those two different subdivisions and number two could you just do a little bit of explaining as to what that entailed and some of the details from last week yes Ius is i-u-s and it's gladii three syllables it's g-l-a-d-i-i Ius gladii which is latin for the right of the sword so I talked about two Roman subdivisions. One had the right to execute, which is the right of the sword. One did not have the right to execute. So they did not have the Eus gladii. And the picture of Jesus with the two-edged sword is his declaration. He had, has the Eus gladii. He has a sword in his mouth. He has the right to that sword and his fiery eyes mean he judges perfectly. So one edge of his sword, if, if understood correctly, would be for him to defend you with, and the other side of his sword would be him to execute his enemies with. So um, he has the right to that sword. He has the Eus gladii in Roman terms. Was that the entirety of the question, Mike? Yeah,
1: just a little okay. more context uh, around those topics. Those I think people were trying to do a little bit of research uh, and weren't able to find the information that you were referring to. So yeah, thank you, Pastor I mean, this last question reads, uh, last week in verse 17, you mentioned an extra biblical literature state about the hidden manna uh, and in the cleft of Mount Sinai delivered by Jeremiah. Did God not direct Israel to keep the manna overnight but discarded? Was Jeremiah directed to do that by God or was that extra biblical literature?
0: Okay, so Jeremiah wasn't... Um... Directed to collect manna the way the exodus people were Jeremiah's many many centuries after the exodus people who Were commanded to only gather enough for the day Because because it's their only food You'd be tempted to collect some and save it, but that doesn't show trust in God um, Which by the way, I have a whole philosophy of Publix um, about that, but anyways um, And only on Fridays could they gather enough for two days because that way they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. And um, it proved God proved faithful for 40 years, uh, where they'd go to bed with no food in sight for them anywhere. They'd wake up with plenty for everybody to eat. So, um, but uh, yes, that would rot and get maggots if anybody collected more than was a faithful portion for them. I think you you asked me about the source of the hidden manna that's mentioned in Revelation and the idea that Jeremiah hid some in a cleft uh, during the exile. And the idea is that when Jesus comes back, he wants to share that hidden manna with those that are faithful uh, to, to what he was telling that church. And if they ask for the source of that, it's simply... It's it's in rabbinical writings. It's tradition of the rabbis uh, is where they would say um, that that was the hidden manna. It's not. There's no biblical book or or, or um, you know Talmud or anything like that that mentions it. It's simply uh, re- there were rabbis teachings over the centuries over uh, that. So I think that's what's being referred to in Revelation. I think that's what's being referred to in Revelation.
1: Thank you so much, make sure you send in your questions.